Good morning. I got in a little late because uh, this morning is our sixth sixth grade student graduation, and uh, so I I get to go in there and uh, spend a few minutes with them before coming in here to uh, worship with you. And uh, I always get nervous. It's very nerve wracking uh, speaking to sixth graders for me. This is nerve wracking. But uh, this morning we're going to continue in our series from Samson, and I wanted to finish uh, uh, talking a little bit about chapter 14, so we're going to return to Samson's desire from uh, Judges 14. And I'd like to read just a, a few of the opening verses, starting at verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Our series, uh, Samson's Desire, could be perhaps uh, better called Samson's Syndrome. In medicine and psychology, a syndrome is uh, the collection of signs and symptoms that characterize a single condition. That single condition in Samson is pride. There are lots of ways that we can talk about pride, describe pride. But in the end, pride is a preoccupation with me and not we. A preoccupation, an absorption, a, a, a self-interest dominated by me. I'm I'm talking about me, and you should be talking about me. God is all about we and not me. From the deep communion and oneness of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, to the making of covenant, a word that we don't hear that often, but whenever you hear the word covenant, you're thinking of deep, mutual 
relationship and commitment. And he makes a covenant with Abraham. And in that covenant, he opens Abraham's eyes to the scope and dimension of the whole world because God desires relationship with all. And we even see that in the invitation to covenant with the whole world created, a covenant created in the Messiah, the Christ, the church, his people, the people of God, sealed by God with the Spirit of God in none other than a marriage, as we read in the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5. A marriage, a covenant of potentially worldwide eternal proportions. That's the scope. But on the other hand, in the book of Judges, the refrain that keeps occurring in Judges, six times in all, that is used to describe the people of Israel. In fact, the name Israel is a covenant name. And that refrain is this, they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, the story of Samson opens with those very words. The people of Israel, the people of God, did what was evil in their own eyes. And what's striking about that is that even as we began to read in chapter 14 of Samson's story, we see that Samson does what is right in his own eyes. And that refrain that characterizes Samson causes us to see Samson as the embodiment of what becomes hereafter in the book of Judges as the refrain of the people of God. Each did what was right in his own eyes. That's me, not we. God sees that as kind of the epitome of what is evil in his eyes because he's all about we and not me. Could the story have been different? It could. I don't know what it would have looked like, but it isn't different because of pride. Pride is the one way that's the wrong way. And from the announcement of the angel in the last chapter, the part that tells us about the birth of Samson, his mother is told that he is to be set apart, consecrated. He has a special vocation, and he's to be reared as a Nazarite. And the purpose of this is that he might begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. He's to begin this work. And so it's no surprise that when we begin reading in chapter 14, as we did, we expect God to be 
moving in Samson in a way that's going to fulfill his vocation, his purpose, his uh, destiny. And so we read, Samson went down to Timnah, and we may expect him to engage the Philistines in some ways, but what we are surprised to find is that Samson is engaging, pun intended, the Philistines in a way totally unexpected because of the role of the eyes in the life of Samson. The power of his desire, his own will, which is uh, expressed in what he sees and what is called right, straight, the thing that is good, the thing that I desire, the thing that is right in his eyes. The eyes we see have it. And we know from our own experience that our eyes can get us into trouble. Now, because we know the story of Samson, we know that he sees only what he wants. And pride can cause us to see only what we want to see, what we need to see is to see what we don't want to see. Did that make sense to you? We see only what we want, but we need to see what we don't want. When, you, you, we, when we use the word want, want implies advantage, benefit. It's all addition and no subtraction. It's pluses, not minuses. You don't use want of things you don't want. You use it of things that you only think are going to benefit you. You don't see the minuses. You don't see the subtraction. Samson saw a daughter of the Philistines and said, get her for me. And when his parents pointed out the disadvantages, he saw only addition and not subtraction, only plus signs, because she was right in his eyes. And because we know the rest of the story, we can see that Samson didn't see, nor did he want to see the complications, the many negatives and he certainly didn't see the heartbreaks involved in what was not good and what he didn't want. I, I just want to speak plainly to you for a moment. Physical attraction and lust is one-sided. It's all plus and no minus. When does a man, when did a man ever who is turned on by the sight of a young girl, when did it ever include the reality of her response to him? When did it ever include her saying something like, I'm not attracted to you? When did it ever include her saying, you're just an old guy, or get a better car, or I'm not interested in your, your dress or your style? 
When did it ever include turnoffs? Like maybe she chews with her mouth open or has a habit of picking her nose. Those are not things that men see. It doesn't include serious needs, her yearning for real love and not lust. And it doesn't include the fact that we're fantasizing, living in a fictional world, a world that really doesn't exist. And maybe we ought to include the negative of the fact that I'm feeding, I'm, I'm feasting on a diet of fantasy and not real world. I'm detaching myself from the way things really are. And I'm living in a fiction of my own imagination. We call them dreams. Turning desires into demands is really one-sided as well. All plus, no minus. Dream cars, dream boats, dream houses, dream relationships, dream presidents, dream people, dream pastors, dream churches. They're called dreams for a reason because they don't exist in real life. And if our desires create demands and we're living in a more fictional than real world, we're headed for disappointment. I'd love, I don't know, love, that's inaccurate. But there have been times that I desired to own a Lamborghini. Now, that's a car, if you don't know. And I don't have time to tell you wonderful stories. But I have, I have really done away with that desire because I've done some hard thinking about the disadvantages. Like I would have no room to carry all the stuff that I carry with me in my wonderful little CRV that's 11 years old that I love because I don't have to pay astronomical fees for maintenance. I don't have to worry about where I park I don't have to be angry at people for the way they treat my car. I mean, we could go on, couldn't we? But you see my point. When we see clearly and not lustfully, not just driven by desire, we not only see the things that attract us, the positives, but we look at things realistically. And then when people like our parents in Samson's case say, Samson, would you look at some other options and considerations? Have you considered some disadvantages, some negatives? We don't just keep right on marching and say, it's right in my own eyes. I wanted to take a moment to draw our attention to verse 4. Verse 4 is quite striking because as soon as Samson resists his parents' concern, their strenuous objection.
we wonder if God isn't approving of intermarriage. And in those times and under those circumstances, which are very ancient and quite different and way on the other side of the cross. And by the way, in the Bible, there's what we call progressive revelation. And so we have to keep in mind what God continues to reveal. His greatest revelation is in Jesus Christ. But at that time, he was trying to create a covenant people that were devoted to him. And in order to do that, he wanted them to be separate, to live separately. Because that constant engagement with people of other beliefs and other convictions and other passions and desires constantly caused them to turn away from the Lord and to renounce or to move away from their devotion to the Lord. The location of this verse is very important. We know the rest of the story, and so we start reading it right away as though all of that other stuff is already present. But if you read carefully verses 1 through 6, Samson, the only thing he's done is seen a woman. And yes, we think it's ominous, ominous. And not, and I mean, there's great suspense when he says, she's right in my own eyes. But nothing has actually happened when we get to verse 4. And at that point, we are reminded of God's vocation and his desire to work through Samson in delivering his people from under the oppressive hand of the Philistines. It reminds us that God is in the messy stuff of life for greater purposes. And it does set in stark contrast God's vocation for Samson and Samson's prideful self-will and folly when it does come. And it comes in the following verses. But it does remind us of Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 20. Especially, let me just share with you verse 20. Joseph, his brothers have come to him. He's now the vice pharaoh. A lot has been, has happened, and you may not be really familiar with the story, but his brothers sold Joseph out of jealousy into slavery. And Joseph suffered many hardships, but through God's sovereign hand, Joseph rose to prominence under Pharaoh and was in a position to help his people. And when his brothers finally came before him, they're frightened for their lives because, as it said in verse uh, 15, because of all the evil that we did to Joseph. And then Joseph says, you intended to harm me but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. It's hard for us to understand in the story of Joseph how God continues to work and seek what is best for we. But Samson keeps seeking what is best for me. 
And now it will be more pronounced as we continue. And by the way, we're set apart like this. There are times where we can be flirting with things, but we really haven't renounced our vocation. You know, God's promise for us, hope for us, desire for us, work in our lives. It's never too late to respond and move with God. It's not too late for Samson. But we do know the rest of the story. But what about your story? What is the rest of the story? How will it end? It largely depends in the decisions and choices we make each and every day. And we have that, the profound opportunity, the open future to what God wants to do through you and me. Don't limit it. Don't restrict it. Not only through pride, but through a lack of vision and understanding that you are unique and special to God. You have a story. It's still being written. If Samson had a teachable spirit like his successor Samuel had, Samuel who would say, speak, Lord, your servant's listening. Perhaps Samson would have a teachable spirit, a we attitude, and the story might be different. But Samson has a can't-touch-this attitude of me first that isolates him. And we see those that in the next verses. Samson is making his way with his parents to Timnah because they have to arrange the marriage. The father is the head, and he will meet with the father of this woman. Samson hasn't even yet spoken with her. And they're making their way near the vineyards of Timnah. Well, we know from the fact that he's a Nazarite, that's ominous. He's not to eat of the fruit of the grape let alone the fermented grape, and he's not to touch dead carcasses. And in the next couple of verses, both things occur. He evidently departs from his parents because his parents don't know what has happened between him and the roaring, rushing lion. He tears it apart with incredible strength because God's Spirit has empowered him, and he rips the lion apart by, we would imagine, like a lamb, the, la the hind legs. You know, the Bible isn't uh, steam-cleaned and sanitized of difficult things. That's an encouragement to us, by the way, because the characters and heroes of the Bible are just like you and me. But what we go on to see, after he talks to the woman after the lion after he goes back and checks the carcass and there in the carcass of the dead lion bees have made a hive and he scoops out the honey 
Well, that's a defilement to a Nazarite. And he eats the honey. And then when he catches up with his parents, he shares the honey with his parents and he doesn't tell them. You see, it's at this point, seven, eight, and nine, that we realize Samson's really headed in a direction that's all his own, a way that is all his own. And it's the wrong way. And it's really the way of what is right in my eyes. It's the way of me first. It's not the way of we, me and God. It's not the way of me and those in my family or those in my neighborhood or those in my church or those in my life. That where I think about my choices and decisions and the impact that it has on them because I'm a part of them. I belong to them and they belong to me. It's all about me. And when pride becomes the most important thing in our life, when I become, when it's all about me, we will find ourselves more combative and competitive than collaborative. Combative and competitive in a malicious way. Oh, there's a good competition. Don't get me wrong, but here we see a malicious competition in Samson. He makes this riddle, which isn't even a fair riddle. In an honor contest, there's going to be honor and there's going to be shame. And these new companions that are going to be a part of him in joining himself to a new people, the Philistines, through marriage. Maybe God would have... You know, at some point, if Samson had turned around, used that marriage in some way to affect a change in the status between the Philistines and the Israelites. But it never happens because it's all about him. And in this contest, he's with his wife. You know, ancient marriage of that time, you had to have an engagement, and you were like husband and wife, even before the marriage was consummated, and there were days in which, you know, there was interrelationships being built, and then the wedding feast, and at the end, the consummation, and here it says that Samson threw a party. Well, this was, it, this was the custom. See, he's He's buying into their practices, their ways, and the companions that become like his groomsmen. You want to draw those people closer. I know this is confusing when we're sorting through Samson because we know this is all wrong. He shouldn't be fraternizing like this. But we can learn principles about relationships, about we versus me. And through this honor contest, Samson shames his friends. And they, in turn, because so much is at stake, you know, when you make it all about ego and pride, everybody, somebody's going to lose. And so they put his wife in the position. I'm assuming you've read this a little. Please be reading the story of Samson. They go to Samson's wife, the the Philistines, you know, like, hey, the Americans, they, they, if somebody from another country comes and marries an American girl, and all the friends are from America, 
And they go to her and they say, look, what are you, why are you, help us out with this. Because the wager, 30 cloaks of linen and changes of clothes, a lot's at its stake. And we see that this combative spirit puts not only his parents, but his wife, his in-laws, the people that he's trying to become a part of through marriage, it puts them all at odds and isolates Samson. Pride destroys we. What's interesting, and we'll look at this at another time in an overview, but the women in his life pinpoint the problem. The wife says, you only hate me. If you loved me, you'd tell me. Even Delilah in chapter 16, verse 15, how can you say I love you? Your heart's not with me. Those are the right words, but the wrong women because he's in a relationship that he shouldn't be in. And that's what makes this so confusing. There are great truths here, but the whole thing's set in a situation that just shouldn't be by his pride. Marriage some of, if we had time for testimonies, I think every married couple here would say to those of you that aren't, marriage is the most important decision you'll ever make after your decision to follow Christ. Follow him. Let him lead you when it comes to finding your life's mate. And everyone else pays child support when pride takes priority. Samson is childish and blames everyone else after the companions get the answer to the riddle out of Samson's wife because they've threatened to burn down her house with her and her father in it. And she can't even confide that to Samson. She can't go to Samson and say, what do I do? He should be protecting her. Amazing. He pays his debt with others' property. Reminds me of Proverbs 26, verse 10, where there the fool is like an archer who goes around shooting everybody else but the target. I read uh, yesterday Pastor Tulian Javidian, who is the grandson of... uh, Billy Graham, thank you. He uh, apologized for something, but what I want you to do is hear this part of his apology, and I'm quoting him. I'm an emotional guy, and in my highly charged emotional state, I said things in haste, publicly and privately, that I regret. I never want anything I say to be a distraction from the mind-blowing good news of the gospel, and last week I did. I got in the way. When you feel the need to respond to criticism, it reveals how much you built your identity on being right. I'm an idolater. And that came out last week. Man, his, his stock went up in my eyes. You know why? Because the most important thing is having nothing more important in our lives than Jesus Christ. 
And that's what he was saying. He said, yeah, I lost sight of the most important thing. I got in the way. I became the idol, me. I'm the idolater. That's pretty profound stuff. 